Hello, and welcome to the Ken's and Joe Talk Show, the show where we try our best and help you do the same. I'm Mackenzie. And I'm Jordan. If you're new here, we're available on all of the podcasting platforms, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you want to ask us a question or ask us advice, check out the form linked in the show notes, and also follow us on Instagram at Ken's and Joe Talk Show for more content. So in this episode, the first segment we are doing is on cancel culture. Yes. And then... The second segment will be on our Asian American and mixed race identities. Mm-hmm. We got a question about about being half Filipino and what that experience has been like. So yeah. we thought we'd we'd dedicate a whole segment to it. Yeah, and also in wake of the recent acts of violence in this country, we figured it would be best to share our take and do an episode about it because we have a lot of thoughts mm-hmm. on what our experience is like and a little bit about what the Asian American experience is as a whole. So stay tuned for that in the second half. But first, let's get to cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So we are going to be talking about when it, when is it acceptable? When is it you know, maybe not acceptable. Mm-hmm. It's a very hot topic these days, so. It's it's a hot topic, and it's also very complicated. Yeah, yeah, I think it's more complicated than... Than people make it out to be, I feel like... Okay, you know what, though? I have a question, and mm. we didn't actually talk about this in our notes, but okay. when I think about cancel culture, I always wonder this. When When is the situation... Like, what is the situation that you think started cancel culture? Because I have like two in mind when I think like okay this is when cancel culture really started for me I can't really pinpoint when like a particular event for me it was the me too movement as a whole Mm -hmm. because obviously that was huge and men everywhere were concerned about their livelihoods and the livelihood of their their friends I I saw a tweet recently that was like if cancel culture is real why do we have to cancel Joss Whedon every other year and I was like yeah I mean yeah because it doesn't really hurt men some men that much Mm -hmm. Uh, most men it doesn't hurt that much especially for things like sexual assault but I think in my opinion that's that's when it really clicked into place for me in terms of cancel culture. Yeah. What were the two you were thinking of? Um, Well, I think a lot of people would agree with you that that's really, like, when it gained a lot of traction. Yeah. For me, I think the first, like, when it really started was, I don't know if you remember him, but Sam Pepper on YouTube. He was a YouTuber. Oh, okay. And there was a YouTube video released anonymously by a girl who was accusing him of rape and then oh. all of these other allegations started and then the videos that he posted where he would like go to Venice Beach and he would just walk up to girls and kiss them without saying anything like that got called into question mm. and then um not MagCon I think it was MagCon like all of the videos of Nash Greer saying the n-word oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. like that there was a video posted of like what guys like about girls and it was like girls should shave and girls should do this and that oh yeah okay I remember that. yeah that yeah. was more like 2013 I want to say it was pretty long mm. ago yeah but I think that was at least in my opinion the first time that a man's career or at least somebody's career had really been just completely shut down mm. like Sam Pepper completely stopped I mean, yeah, I have no idea who that is, so... Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So, when would you say cancel culture is acceptable? You know, canceling someone, and by that I mean 
never giving them money support Mm -hmm. etc well none of their work none of their yeah yeah so for me I think it has a lot to do with like accountability Mm. so like if let's say I'll use JK Rowling as an example okay yeah and I feel like that's a it's a widely known yeah so for those of you who don't know JK Rowling has tweeted some very out Wordly, openly transphobic things. Yeah, I feel like let's just say it how it is. J.K. Rowling is transphobic. Yes, yes, yes. And obviously this is something that people have called her out on multiple times for months. Right. And a lot of her, the actors who worked with her, spoke out against her actions. And she has defended them. Mm-hmm. It's not apologized. She's doubled down. She's doubled down a few times. Yeah. And because of this, in my opinion, I think that that's something that is cancel-worthy. I personally have stopped buying things that would give her money. I've stopped buying, like, Noble Collection stuff and everything. Because for me, what, what differentiates it is that what she did that was harmful was brought to her attention. Mm -hmm. She knows about it. She knows the harm that it causes. She didn't take accountability for it. She doubled down. Right. She didn't apologize for it. And she continues to benefit and generate income from those things. Yeah. The difference for me, the thing that would make it not worthy of being canceled is if she, those things were brought to her attention. She apologized. She took accountability. She did her research and educated herself about how those things are harmful to the trans community mm-hmm. and then was actively working against the harm that those kinds of of statements make yeah and then actively working to support the trans community and apologizing taking accountability but she didn't do any of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay yeah so when would you say it is not productive cancel culture i think Well, we were talking about this earlier when we were getting ready for the podcast, but I think it can be counterproductive to to pretend that we've always been as culturally aware Mm -hmm. as we are right now. Yeah. And I think that it's not productive to cancel people for statements that they may have made in a time when those things weren't considered like as culturally acceptable as they are now. Yeah, and I think that it it can be really easy to think of very obvious things that other people might have done, mm-hmm. but I think it's really important to look at yourself and say, okay, well, potentially I knew something was, was not okay and I would never have done that thing, but what was I doing when I was younger or however many years ago yeah. or just recently? Uh, was I doing something that is offensive? And obviously there are situations where it's like, this was very wrong. They still have these beliefs. People need to know about it. But if it's something that happened like 5, 10, 15 years ago, you bringing that stuff up just to make a person look bad today when they aren't that person anymore Mm -hmm. and are actively working against the harm that those kinds of statements might Mm -hmm. cause. Yeah, yeah. It it can feel 
counterproductive counterproductive yeah and it can really i think hurt a person in a way that that doesn't need to be done Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so now let's get into some more nuanced topics okay Something I wanted to bring up in terms of cancel culture is bean dad. So I told you about this when it was happening, which was yeah. probably like a couple months ago. A a man on Twitter revealed, or he was he he was just pretty much a nobody on Twitter, and he was talking about you know rainy day during the pandemic. It was just him and his daughter home, and she really wanted some beans, but the beans were in a can. The can requires a can opener. So he said. Because neither of them were doing anything, you know. It was just kind of a boring day. And he said, okay, neither of us are going to eat until you get the can opened and you figure out how to use a can opener, like a manual can opener. Yeah, because she didn't know how to use Because she didn't one. know how to use it. She was like maybe 9 or 10 or 11 or something like that. And she'd never had to use one before. It, it had always been done for her. So he was like, okay, this is going to be like a teaching moment. I'm going to teach my kid how to use a can opener. Mm-hmm. And... Neither of us are going to eat until she figures it out. So he's, like, live-tweeting this situation. Um, Eventually, it's revealed that it takes about six hours for her to figure out how the can opener works because it's confusing, and if you've never, like, had or seen someone use it before, then you're like, "How, how does this work? So eventually she figured it out, and she got it open, and they both ate. But people on Twitter effectively canceled him. You know, uh, they were tweeting, I hope your child gets taken away from you. I hope... Like sending death threats. Yeah, like sending death threats. He eventually had to delete his Twitter. People were, like, digging through his Twitter from years and years and years ago. And they're like, oh, look, these these tweets from 2014 prove he's anti-Semitic as well. It's not surprising that he's a child abuser. And, like, I was abused as well, so this is what abuse looks like. He's depriving his child of food. He's starving her. And it's like, nowhere in the, in the thread did he say, like, she... Like, if she was really hungry, she, she couldn't, couldn't eat anything. I think he he even said, like, we had a really big breakfast that morning, so neither of us were starving. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't keep food locked up. If she was upset, if she was crying, I would have fed her. Yeah. Like... And obviously, like, she wasn't trying to open this can for the six straight hours. Like, I'm sure they were doing other yeah. things. Yeah, and that's what, that's what he said as well. Like, you know, she would get frustrated or tired and she'd go off and do something else and then she'd be like okay I'm ready to try again yeah to me that doesn't sound like abuse it sounds like a teaching moment yeah that may not be the most conventional but like they were both not eating yeah it's not like he was and she wasn't in danger no yeah. no but it really got people riled up and I think in that case I don't think cancel culture was appropriate I don't think he deserved people digging through his life essentially a nobody right he's not famous he doesn't have any following people digging up tweets from years ago and saying he's a horrible person he's a child abuser you know he deserves to have his child taken away like that's really extreme and really hurtful yeah when it comes to that level i just don't think it's productive i think it can really damage people yeah i think at the base of cancel culture is really just holding people accountable for their actions. Yeah. And I think what kind of gets lost in the idea of cancel culture is the fact that holding something somebody accountable for their actions doesn't entail ruining everything about their life. Yeah. That's not how taking accountability works in the real world, mm-hmm. in day-to-day life. Yeah. 
like when you do something wrong somebody brings it to your attention and you change that behavior and you don't do it again that's how taking accountability works and i think that this idea of ruining people's careers i understand when that is necessary i think that there's a time and there's a place where that's necessary things like roseanne barr yeah Mm -hmm. i think i think personally that that was necessary because the harm of her actions and her behavior was brought to her attention by the public yeah at extreme rates Mm -hmm. and she didn't care yeah and so she lost her career yeah and in that case i think it's necessary but at the end of the day holding someone accountable should be about learning from your mistakes Mm -hmm. because that's what i mean that's what like the human experience is yeah yeah it's about learning and then doing better and then moving on right right but obviously it's not that's not always the case it's not always that easy yeah i i think it gets lost and in the case of of being dad it definitely felt like people seeing that and reliving their own trauma which is hard i get that i get that but people were talking about like how their parents would lock up food Mm -hmm. or how their parents wouldn't let them eat and just like would um get off on the power of not letting their child eat or something like that and it's like well "Mm." that's horrible that's not what's going on exactly exactly yeah yeah and when i think i think when it comes to issues about race it also gets kind of muddled because then it's like well, this isn't always everyone's apology to accept. You know, that's a yeah. really big issue. And and certain groups of people can't, like, forgive, you know? Right, yeah. So yeah. it definitely gets complicated with that. Okay, so do you want to ask the next question? Yes. Okay, Jordan, do you think we should enjoy past things that would be seen as problematic today or just leave them in the past? Yeah, I feel like this is a really hard question because there are things that we know now that we didn't know back then so some of the examples we have listed are angela johnson her Mm -hmm. comedy skits uh if you don't know her she's a comedian and she got famous by doing mad tv skits but also by her uh set that went viral that included a caricature of a vietnamese woman in a nail salon Mm -hmm. so i just checked her instagram and she has at least recently in the wake of all of the Asian American outcry, has not said anything... Regarding the regarding that she did. Yeah, regarding her contribution to Asian American stereotypes and the Asian American experience. As a person of color herself, I think that's really important to note. She hasn't said anything, and that sketch was really impactful for a lot of people. It made making fun of... Nail texts. Nail texts acceptable yeah which is just not not yeah and she hasn't said anything so i don't know do i still think she's funny and a good comedian yeah but i think she really needs to say something about that yeah and own up to that and i don't know if she does those kinds of sketches anymore i hope not i I I mean she hasn't done anything like similar to that Mm Uh, but she's still putting out work. She's st- she has a podcast. She has specials on Netflix. Yeah. And yeah, I think that sometimes it can get lost, the things that she was saying about Asian American people. And also at- like caricatures of like, quote unquote, like ghetto. Yes. Ghetto 
Hispanic women, ghetto black women. Yeah, it just would not fly today. It wouldn't. And that's the thing that you were kind of mentioning is like when you said there were things that we didn't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Jordan means socially. Yes. There were obviously people then who were like, this isn't cool. Right. But as a society, more widespread, we are aware that these kinds of things and these kinds of jokes and behaviors aren't appropriate anymore. Mm-hmm. And then another example we had was Chris Brown. So listening to Chris Brown's music. Yeah. Being able to separate the artist from the work is yeah. always a hot topic in like sociology classes <laughs> yeah I mean how do you after knowing what he's done mm-hmm. and continues you, to do yeah how do you separate that yeah it's hard and I, I think wherever you fall on the spectrum of I don't want to listen to their music anymore or I'm still going to listen to their music but I acknowledge that they're a horrible person mm-hmm. it's complicated it is complicated and as long as you know no. yeah what your stance is then that's okay. Yeah. So let's talk about celebrities who have done good things mm-hmm. in in response to having something be brought to their attention and then fixing it. Fixing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the two that I thought of because I love country music, we both do. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't know if you're I just bought to keep cowboy boots. Oh my god. I just bought cowboy boots. Yeah. Wow. They're really cute. I'll show you them later. So the two that I'm thinking of uh, are two country bands who changed their names mm-hmm. last year mm-hmm. after the outcries for racial justice. Mm-hmm. So those two are the artists formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. They changed their name to the Chicks mm-hmm. because Dixie is a term that was used to refer to the South uh, during the time of slavery. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, this isn't okay. We acknowledge that and we're changing it. So we're just the Chicks now. And also Lady Antebellum, Antebellum obviously being the term referring to the post-slavery South, so they changed their name to Lady A. Yeah, yeah. So something that we didn't talk about that I think is important to mention right now, just with everything going on with the violence against, you know what I'm going to say, huh, Asian Americans, is uh, everything going on with Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. Is that what you thought I was going to say? Yeah. We actually talked about this in my children's literature class about how... I love that class. I love I that class, too. yeah. About how, you know, nobody actually asked for the company to do what they were doing. Right. To stop. Where the, what are they, I don't even know what they're doing. What are they, like, stopping So they're publishing? stopping the publishing of six books, which portray racial stereotypes. Okay, yeah. I yeah. mean, makes sense. Yeah. But so, we don't need to stop teaching Dr. Seuss as a whole. No. I mean... I don't know, because that's something that we talked about is like there were there were people in my class who were like, is it really necessary? Is it really necessary for us to to celebrate his work? Like, are Mm. there not other authors and other works out there that exist that can just replace it? Interesting. Yeah. And which I think is a valid point. But just thinking about the the work that he did that was post-World War II? Yeah. Or the Vietnam War? Yeah, his political work is is significant to study, I believe, personally. And as a study of literature, as a study of propaganda, also including the uh, racial works that he did is very important and significant. Teaching to children, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really think that those works were meant for children in the first place. Yeah, yeah, but I'm saying, like, his children books. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know if we need to stop teaching his work 
to children. Because those aren't necessarily reflections of that kind of... Yeah, it's. I feel like studying him as a cultural figure, because he did have a big impact on children's literature, mm-hmm. and he did have a big impact on political cartoons, mm-hmm. that whole field. So studying him in high school, potentially studying him in college, mm-hmm. I think that's beneficial. But yeah, I mean, the people in your class were right, I think. Yeah. There are plenty of other children's books that use Dr. Seuss as reference points mm-hmm. that are just as wonderful. Yeah. And another thing is that a lot of people considered this whole scenario to be news. Mm. And for a lot of people, I think a lot of people knew that Dr. Seuss had had yeah. drawn these kinds of cartoons and that it wasn't news to a lot of people. And so when this publishing press yeah. company decided to do this it wasn't because people were particularly demanding it of them no it was them responding to the cultural moment that we're in right now yeah and it's not a publishing company it's his estate his okay. estate is saying okay. we're not going to be publishing these anymore yeah because they reflect you know anti-asian yeah. sentiment mm-hmm. anti-asian anti-semitic various yeah. different uh, races he portrayed in a very negative light so it's his estate that's saying that yeah. and I think people on Facebook were confused and they were thinking that people were calling for it they're like oh yeah. we're canceling Dr. Yeah. Seuss now like what's what's next like being super like the snowflakes are requesting blah 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 yeah same with that same with like Mr. Potato Head <laughs> a lot of people were like oh like Blah, How blah, dare blah. they take How the potatoes' gender like, away? Don't pretend it's like, like it's you a cared. potato. Like, don't pretend like you cared about the potatoes. Right, yeah. Okay, so here's what I was going to say. I remember now. Okay. If a brand okay. does not say something or speak up actively about issues mm-hmm. how does that make you feel about the brand like do you think they need to be canceled for it or like what are your thoughts on on brands taking a stance on social issues i feel like this is kind of related but somewhat not related mm-hmm. but people who have brands or you know just people influencers i guess you would say how do you feel when they make a choice to not talk about social issues. Well, I kind of feel like it it depends. Like, if it's a brand like Lysol or, like, I don't know, something like that where I wouldn't necessarily expect them to take a stand. Obviously, I would appreciate it regardless of what brand it was, but I don't think I expect it from brands like that. But... I expect it more from small businesses or businesses that serve a particular community. Well, I'd say, like, if you're serving people specifically, like any kind of person, mm-hmm. then, yeah, you should you should make a statement because you're serving people, Yeah, you know? You're not promoting a product. You're, you're usually the businesses that I'm referring to. You're providing a service to people of any background. Yeah. And so it, it rubs me the wrong way if, if you are making this choice to not post about stuff when other people in your same industry mm-hmm. are making the opposite choice, choosing to speak out about issues like this, saying, I don't care if I lose customers, it's worth it because I'm speaking up for what is right. Yeah. And... Yeah, so I think 
canceling people with your with your money. You know, I'm not going to put this person on blast mm-hmm. and be like, you shouldn't you shouldn't go to them because they feel quote unquote exhausted by by all of this talk. Although I'm thinking that to myself, mm-hmm. and now I'm not going to buy stuff from them in the future or use their services in the future. You know, cancel people with your dollars. Cancel yeah. people with your with your money. Yeah. Choose to go with someone who aligns with your values. Yeah. And and just hold people accountable in mm-hmm. a productive way that encourages them to change their behavior and move on in a way that is working against their behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's not really much else to say about cancel culture other than that. Mm-hmm. If you have more specific questions, feel free to leave them in either one of our DMs, the Instagram that we made specifically for the podcast, or the Google form listed in the show notes. So now, a brief ad break before we discuss... Our cultural, racial, and ethnic identity. Yes. Okay, Mackenzie. So... Okay, Mackenzie. So how would you like to talk about this? Our ethnicities so i feel as though well obviously we should say what we are first yes so we are half filipino half white our dad is filipino and our mom is white yes so Mackenzie gets this question quite often again it was requested of us on instagram on instagram but she gets it pretty much on the daily on your tiktok i'd say asking what my ethnicity is saying oh i thought you were this Mm -hmm. i thought you were that Mm -hmm. what are you yeah she's had to make multiple videos on it Mm -hmm. and i think that just reflects something that we've had to go through our entire life Mm -hmm. of being questioned about our race and having Mm -hmm. to prove that to other people through our actions and through other things you know what we say and what we do yeah and our our experiences with our ethnicity and our race have been very different, I think, growing up and even now, really, Mm. just because it's something that I think growing up was more forcibly, like, brought to your attention, like, in relationships and stuff, and it wasn't until later in my life that I think I was more aware of it. Yeah, so I guess I'll start and just talk about, like, how... I experienced race growing up. So the school, the elementary and middle school, same school, and then the high school that I went to was very diverse. Mackenzie went to a different middle school than me, so we had different different experiences there. But I also hung out with a fairly diverse group of people. My best friend in elementary school was half black and half white. Her dad was the person of color in that relationship. And my best friend in middle school her dad was half Japanese, or her dad was Japanese and her mom was white, so she was half Japanese and half white. And in high school, one of my best friends was half Mexican and half white. Her dad was the Mexican one, her, her dad was the Mexican one. And my best friend, she's Asian and she was adopted into a white family. So the intersection of identities was nothing out of the ordinary for me. I thought it was normal to kind of feel the way that I had always felt Mm -hmm. and I surrounded myself subconsciously or consciously with people who identified with me on that same level yeah and then even still one of my best friends who I met in college he's half Mexican and half white so we kind of have a similar experience in that regard yeah being mixed or different experiences being mixed you know it's not it's not 
one or the other. Yeah, so I think my my experiences in that regard are different than yours because mm. I grew up feeling like, oh, this is very normal. Yeah. My experience is normal. Yeah. If anything, the people who I hung out with who were fully white, that was kind of the the abnormal thing. Mm-hmm. However, in high school, the two people who I dated long term were both white and the first time where I was like oh this is kind of interesting it was Obama was running for his second term and so there were like people had lawn posters out you know saying who they who they were voting for and my boyfriend's mom was driving us home from school and she said something off the cuff of like it was something like implying that my parents might be voting for Obama because they're in an interracial relationship. So assuming that they're democratic because of that and saying that she hoped that they didn't. And I just remember like, wow, that's a lot for me as a 14 or 15 year old human being to understand the complexity of it. But that was the first time where I was like, oh, this is different Mm -hmm. because I had never been... I had never had my identity tied to politics before. So it was just kind of weird. And then my second relationship in high school, I remember him finding out that I was Asian because I know that I don't appear Asian at first glance, but he asked. And so I told him and it was like this light bulb went off for him. And he was like, okay, I'm attracted to you now. At the time I was flattered because I was like, yes, this guy I like likes me back. And I don't care if it's because I'm Asian, but now, Obviously, I understand that there's this this idea of fetishization behind that. And there were times in that relationship where I felt like I was not Asian enough for him. Yeah. That I didn't watch anime. And, you know, it, yeah. it was just weird. So, so there was that. But that was, like, really subtle. And then I got to college and it was like, oh, everyone here is pretty much white. Yep. And... That was really hard, being in classes and being the only person of color. There's one specific class where I was the only person of color in the whole class. And there were only six other people, all white, and it was a playwriting class, and my professor was white as well. And so whenever we would talk about diversity in theater or diversity of plays, diversity of content, I was always the one who was looked to, to speak up. And so I was like, okay, this is weird and it kind of sucks and I can't speak for everyone. I would say that every time as a preface. But then I decided, okay, well, they want me to talk about race, I'll talk about race. So the second play I wrote for the class, out of two, I decided to write about my own personal experience and my parents' personal experience with race in the 90s specifically. Mm -hmm. And I was told, no, this draws too much on stereotypes. You need to tone it down. If anything, choose a different topic. They didn't receive it well. You know, it felt it was it was quote unquote too on the nose. And I was like, this is my lived experience, my parents' lived experience, real authentic fears that I have and my parents had being in an interracial relationship. And now I'm being told that it's it's not realistic. And so it was it was a weird dichotomy of being like, you are looked to, you have to speak on race when we ask you but when Mm -hmm. we don't ask you we We don't don't want to hear yeah Yeah. and so that was to be honest it i haven't looked at the the, those plays since and i feel like they'd be received differently now and 
it breaks my heart a little bit because I was really, really proud of that. And it put me off of writing plays, writing anything about my experience as an Asian woman and specifically as a mixed race Asian person because it was something that I was really passionate about before that, I think. And then after that, being told that your lived experiences are not realistic yeah. when it's your reality yeah. is just so, like... It's invalidating. It, yeah, yeah. So I think with this wave of of outcry from Asian Americans, it's felt like I can finally have a voice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it, it feels that way for a lot of Asian American people right now. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about the poem that you wrote as well? Oh, yeah, sure. So I wrote a poem this was in high school I wrote this poem but I performed it in college and it it was about you know constantly being asked what race you are as a mixed race person and like the microaggression of being called exotic yes that was like a significant part of the poem Mm -hmm. being called exotic and how it's horrible and it it haunts people and me specifically so I performed it I was really proud of it after the show two white women one an adult a professor or a parent the other, a student, came up to me after the show and they were like, that was really great. Like, your poem was amazing. You're so beautiful. And I think you're misunderstanding the word exotic, you know? Sometimes people just don't have words for what they're saying and they aren't meaning to be offensive. So you need to, like, if you just try to change the connotation of that word in your mind, I think you'll feel a lot better, you know? Being called exotic is a compliment. You know, I wish I was called exotic but I'm never going to be called that. And it was just so, like, I was literally shocked into silence. Yeah. I, I think I just, like, smiled and nodded. And it was like they took the entire message of the poem and all they took was, like, she thinks it's wrong to call people exotic, which I do. But it felt like, okay, now I'm, I'm the one who's wrong for writing this poem and making them potentially feel bad for calling people exotic. Yeah. It was just, it was very bizarre, I think. And also, like, I think that when microaggressions like that are brought to people's attention, a lot of times that is what their reaction is. To deflect. To deflect and to say, well, you're just interpreting what I'm saying wrong. And I didn't mean it like that. And the thing about microaggressions is that it's, it doesn't matter what somebody's intentions were. Yeah. It's how, it's how it was received. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand that what you said was received and you need to change that. Exactly. And so something that like I do want to touch on because it's like a a big part of why what happened in Georgia happened, Mm -hmm. it's fetishization. And the fetishization of Asian women specifically Mm -hmm. is you need to take it. It's a compliment. And that's very much how I felt in that moment. Yeah. It was like, you know, we're complimenting you. You're beautiful. And how dare you think that our compliment is rude yeah and and a huge part of fetishization is you don't see me as beautiful as a person you Mm -hmm. see me as beautiful as an object exactly the same with calling somebody exotic and a lot of people don't know that because you know it's just not something that's brought to a lot of people's attention but the reason that jordan and i find being called exotic as something that isn't a compliment is because it's something you know a fruit is exotic a bird is exotic and I added an addendum to this poem but the one thing 
that I kind of draw a likeness to is the first time Filipino people stepped foot in this country was at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, Missouri. And we were put in a human zoo and gawked at. Yeah. That's what exotic is. That's what the image conjures. Mm -hmm. When you say the word exotic Mm -hmm. to someone who you think is racially ambiguous, Mm -hmm. it's like they're a person in a zoo. Yeah. Like you can just call somebody beautiful. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to use the word exotic. No. And uh, so that's, that's why we, we don't really appreciate being referred to as that. But it's the same with fetishization. You know, mm-hmm. you're, it's just a form of objectification. Yeah, yeah. And I think the most frustrating thing is, like, you're supposed to feel grateful. Yeah, You're yeah. supposed to feel grateful that, that men desire you. Yeah. And you're supposed to feel grateful that, that women think your skin is beautiful and that you'll never get old and they want to know all your secrets. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was a friend that I had, and we were in high school. I think we were seniors, and she asked me, you know, do you ever think about how, like, guys are probably attracted to you because, like, you're, like, an Asian fetish because you're, like, super small and, like, Asian and, like, you're a schoolgirl? And I was like, literally, no. Like, but now I'll be thinking about it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Because it's true and horrible. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Do you want to talk about your experience? Yeah. So my experience is a bit different just because growing up, I didn't have a lot of mixed race friends. A lot of the people I grew up around were white boys. And so I just had no kind of self self awareness regarding my racial identity. And I considered myself white. I saw myself as white. And it wasn't until I was in the seventh or eighth grade when I went to this other middle school that was predominantly white. Mm -hmm. And I remember an inner city school came to like pick up school supplies that we had collected for them in like a fundraiser type of thing. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like I'm so different from them. I look so different. I am so different, blah, 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 blah. And I was standing in this room and I remember thinking, and realizing that if somebody walked into this room and we weren't all wearing uniforms, they would probably group me in with those people. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean those people in like a those people kind of way. I just mean like based on that school, yeah. based on appearances. And that's kind of the moment I realized that the world perceived me as a person of color and not as a white person. And I know that that probably sounds ridiculous to a lot of people, but a lot of times growing up, people around you are mirrors. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't dawned on me yet that I didn't look like the people I was friends with Mm -hmm. until that moment. And when I got to high school, I really struggled because I felt like I wasn't white enough and then I wasn't uh, Filipino enough. And, you know, there was a guy freshman year who said, you have really big eyes for an Asian, Mm -hmm. which was supposed to be, again, a compliment. Yeah, yeah. And then some... uh, my senior year, I was in a relationship with a girl who was black and all of her friends were people of color who were all full. They weren't, none of them were white, like mixed. And for a while, none of them knew that I was white. And when they found out, they would make jokes like, oh, like you're a mutt, you're a fake minority, you're not a real minority, blah, blah, blah. And they would all say that it was like jokes, but Things like that really do cut deep, and I think what what made it even harder was the fact that when I brought up these things and the discomfort that I felt about those kinds of comments to the girl that I was dating, she said to me, well, you're not a real minority. 
you haven't had the experiences that we've had. You didn't grow up in the same place that we did. And, you know, a lot of people feel this way, that that Asian Americans and Asian people aren't considered people of color um, because, because we aren't quote-unquote dark enough or because our experiences are different. Yeah, and I think a lot of people could have the idea that the racial stereotypes towards Asian Americans are all positive. And the stereotype of the model minority, if you haven't looked into it, I encourage you to look into it because those stereotypes are incredibly harmful. Mm -hmm. The treatment of Asian Americans in this country, one, by numbers, we are a minority. And two, it hasn't been good. Yeah. You know, we have been discriminated against for a very long time. I think that's become very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's so it's so shocking right now. I don't know if those people still have those beliefs, but that people ever held those beliefs. Yeah, and, and that was something that really stuck with me and still really sticks with me. And I remember there was another experience where a Filipino guy in my class in high school found out that I was Filipino and was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You don't look Filipino. You don't do this, you don't do that, you're, you you know, just telling me that I wasn't Filipino, and I was like, I don't know what to tell you, look yeah. at my father. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that, I think that a lot of Asian Americans go through this experience of, like, feeling like your experiences as a minority aren't valid, mm-hmm. so you spend your life bottling up this pain and discrimination mm-hmm. because it isn't enough. yeah. But then over time, you just have a lifetime of, like, discrimination. Yeah. And you don't know where to put it. Yeah. And, um, no, I was going to talk about how people will assume that I'm black or that I'm Latina or, you know, that I'm this and that. And people will do it to you, too. Mm -hmm. And I don't... I used to get a lot more offended by it. But I think now, as, like, a quote-unquote public figure, like, I guess I understand, like, people's curiosities. But at the same time, it's, like... I don't know, having to address that over and over again is exhausting, regardless of whether it's in person or not. Yeah. And then something that I wanted to, to, to talk about was also, it's something that we kind of cringe about now, mm-hmm. but like our mom, who is white, and all of her family is white, all of our cousins on that side are white, 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 white. Yes. <laughs> so she, our entire life, has referred to her children as the brown ones. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, the brown ones are mine. Yes. And so there was a period of time, I think, you know, a few years ago maybe, where that really started to bother us. And we would, like, cringe about it. We would kind of get upset and be like, we don't want to be othered like that. But now that I've had the time to, like, think about it and be like, okay, well, why does she do this? It's like I I know the experiences she's had being out in public with us. Mm Mm-hmm as like a young mom in the 90s with me going out with me alone without my dad and people asking her where where she got me from yeah he's like asking what country she got you from yeah and i would imagine you know that's very hard and obviously like i was born in the 90s so it's easy for people listening to be like oh it was different back then but literally our brother was born more recently than that and she would go out in public with him and my cousin who was white and people would ask her to her face if they had two different dads yeah and it's like how invalidating for her experience to have her own children be assumed to be someone else's yeah 
when they're literally hers yeah you know like yeah. we are half her and I I understand I I get it I get why she says you know the brown ones are mine because she's claiming ownership of us when people at face value can question that yeah so and and also like her experiences being married to our dad yeah and just interracial couple yeah and you know, their experiences in the 90s with that of moving into a neighborhood and having somebody be like, oh, there's there's another couple just like you in this neighborhood. And, and our mom thinking that that meant young and our dad understanding that she meant interracial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think people assume that things have gotten better when they've just gotten different. Yeah. So. Yeah. I understand. I understand now in a way that I didn't a few years ago when we were getting bothered by it, mm. why she says that. Yeah. Still makes, it still is an, it's an ick for me. Yeah. But yeah. I understand why she does it. Yeah. But I, I think both of us struggle with feeling not Filipino enough for one side, not white enough for one side. And, yeah. And then, you know, we face these kind of invalidating experiences and little microaggressions here and there that that don't really help with that situation Mm -hmm. but I think at least I've I've come to a point where I've accepted who I am and I'm able to look in the mirror and like recognize and accept what I am instead of trying to be like no I'm white no I'm this I you know yeah I think for me the this tragedy uh, the the horrible mistreatment of Asian Americans over the past year especially, has brought up a lot of feelings in me about, you know, getting more courageous and speaking out about my experiences with Asian American racism. And, you know, now we are living in fear every day, basically, for our dad's safety, Mm -hmm. our uncle's safety, Mm -hmm. and the safety of those we care about. And that's a really scary place to be in. Yeah. And I think that Asian people all over this country are really struggling right now. But if there's one thing for me that's come out of it is that I feel very compelled to talk about it. Like doing this podcast, very compelled. And I know I said before that I was kind of turned off of creating art around my identity Mm -hmm. because of that experience I had about that play. But now I'm like, nope my story is authentic and the people who criticized it and said that it wasn't real they just didn't they didn't want to come to terms with the fact that that's somebody's reality yeah and that they could contribute to making that somebody's reality Mm -hmm. yeah so so i i'm feeling more more like yes i I have a story to tell and Mm. i'm really glad to hear a lot of other asian people talking about their experiences big and small with racism because it's it's very validated yeah even though you know we're mixed and and our experiences may look different in some ways i still feel like it's important for us to contribute to the conversation yeah and add to the conversation yeah and another moral of the story is like people's race while you might be curious it's okay to ask once but 
you it doesn't need to be a topic of discussion like someone can be beautiful because they're beautiful and it doesn't have to be attributed to their race mm-hmm. and someone can talk a certain way and it can't it can be just what it is you yeah. know you can't be like oh wow you don't have an accent like yeah that to me is just crazy yeah you know yeah and Jordan added resources to the show notes for this episode, mm-hmm. and also some resources are linked in my bio if you want to support the Asian American Pacific Islander communities. Yeah, and also I would encourage you, if you're not Asian or you don't have Asian people in your life, or even if you do have Asian people in your life, to learn about the history of Asian people in this country because it's a very rich history it's richer than a lot of people i think realize it is Mm. and just educate yourself about that yeah watch some documentaries watch a documentary read a book yep it's good stuff yep all right thanks for listening to this very long very deep episode yeah if you liked it feel free to leave us a review and rate us in the apple podcast app and stay tuned next week we will be talking about our middle school experience and middle and elementary school experience Mm -hmm. and answering some quick cues yeah so we'll see you you in the next one we love you bye bye